Hi, and welcome once again to From the Center, a podcast by the Center for Western Studies. I'm Jack Val on faculty at the Center for Western Studies, joined as always by my friend and colleague, the director of the Center for Western Studies, John Hodges. Sir, how you doing? I'm, I'm the one that's doing pretty well, Jack. I'm afraid you're the one that's not. You're just getting over that head cold thing, aren't you? Yes, I was laid up all last week out of the blue. Man, that's a long time, but I know how that kind of thing is, and it then lingers. Even after you feel better, you're still yes. kind of clogged yeah, up. As I've been telling people, I'm no longer sick. I'm just gross, That's <laughs> the way to put it. Uh, Boy. Moving on to, I guess, higher matters. Yeah. And the bronchial passages. Um, what's up? Gosh, well, I've just you know come back from this Labrie conference a week or so ago. and. Yes. And it was direct, great fun. It was, uh, it was a terrific time. Didn't you speak after Oz Guinness? I did. I did. Yeah, imagine that. Stick that feather in your cap and call it macaroni. I, just... <laughs> I don't know about that. I tried my best to keep up the, the pace that he set. At, I mean, he's an amazing speaker and a brilliant man. Um, but uh, he, he you know, seemed to like my talk, so I guess it wasn't as bad as I thought. <laughs> but anyway, it was, went very well. I, one of the things I did was a workshop on, uh, on what they call the moral imagination. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we just had a, 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 a podcast about socialism mm-hmm. uh, some time back. And I thought, you know, maybe it's a good idea to describe to our listeners what somebody might call conservatism. Yeah. Even though, you know, it seems like a really bad word today. To be a conservative is is kind of unpopular. Of course, I guess it's always been f- somewhat unpopular. Uh-huh. But but uh, a lot of people associate it with, um, you know, George Bush's reign and the what they call the neocons, the right. the kinds of of uh, guys that got us into the Iraq War, you know, right. and all that. And they assume that a conservative is somebody who's just a kind of hunkered down, you know, old old guy with his fists, you know, shaking his fist at the world, old, going, get off my old, lawn, old kind of. Old yells a clown. Ex- exactly, exactly. What I'd like to talk about is what has been called paleoconservatism, mm-hmm. as opposed to neoconservatism. Uh, and it, it runs really all the way back to Edmund Burke, who was the father of modern conservatism, I think. Mm-hmm. And it comes from his... A uh, book on that we're actually reading this week with the students, um, uh, Reflections on the Revolution in France. And Burke makes a big distinction between his way of looking at the world and the guys that were running the French Revolution mm-hmm. and uh, calls them on some of, the, some of the ideas that led to the French Revolution from people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and, and uh, Voltaire and... Uh, um, uh, Diderot, the uh, encyclopedist, you know, and yeah. um, people like that. Winkleman, the uh, uh, archaeologist. Oh, that's like that's a good French boy, Winkleman. Winkleman, yeah, no, not a Frenchman. It's like Diderot, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and Winkleman. <laughs> a good Chinese fellow. Uh, uh, yeah, no, Winkleman was a. But Winkleman, as you know, was a, an archaeologist, and he's the guy who discovered Pompeii. Uh, and because of Pompeii, digging up Pompeii, there was this sudden rush of interest in neoclassical stuff, you mm. know, looking at Roman ruins that had been somehow, you know, solidified in rock for all these, all these years under the lava of Pompeii. So in the 18th century, there was a big uh, revival of neoclassicism. 
And all of these guys took that and the rationalness, the reasoning process that they they had inherited from people like Descartes and and uh, Spinoza and like that, and gone on into the to the 18th century that we call the Enlightenment, that l- leads to Immanuel Kant's work that st- and he what died in oh I'm not going to get the date right but it's 1809 or 1807 or something like that right just into the 19th century. So <clears throat> the ideas that Rousseau and his buddies wrote about in their works actually served as the the foundation for uh, the French Revolution, the ideas that the French Revolution uh, took up. And that, of course, led to something that they maybe themselves didn't intend. It got a lot wilder than they may have thought it would. Um, Especially when some of, some of them went under the guillotine themselves. That's right. That's right. Danton was guillotined by Robespierre, and then Robespierre later on is guillotined by the others. Uh, in the, they're all in the same movement. So, yeah, you're quite right. But that, uh, that, what they called the reign of terror, I guess that's a, that's a key element there. <laughs> Who wants a reign of terror, right? But right. That's, what they, that's what they ended up with, a, a bloodbath, really, for two or three years there in the early 1790s. Anyway, what I'm interested in is what Burke called conservatism. He said that there were two views of the world. One he called a moral imagination, and the other one he called an idyllic imagination. And I, idle, like an I-D-Y-L-L, idle, right. not I-D-O-L. Right, but it's an like, like Idols of a King by Alfred Lloyd. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And it's a kind of utopian notion. And what I thought it would be fun to talk about is I, I've, I've dug up four uh, principles that I think apply to the or, or define the uh, uh, moral imagination. And their opposites are pretty clear in the idyllic imagination. I thought it might be fun to talk through those. Uh, and then... Uh, and see how they might apply today, what, what kind of trouble we can get into uh, by thinking them through in our day-to-day in the 21st century. Right. you articulating our conservatism correctly and persuasively is necessary. I think so. Very necessary. Um, it's become more apparently necessary to me. I had this joke only with myself because that's where my best jokes are. Um, that best audience too, right? right like as, uh, my, the joke was uh, like as soon as I discovered that I really was X or I really believed in X or X was uh, the perfect expression for something. As soon as I discovered it, I then almost immediately discovered that the whole thing like had been slandered and poisoned and toxified by mm-hmm. something going around. Um, you know, my one of my favorites is I was trying to figure out well, what's this term for like. You know what the Frankfurt School was trying to do with critical theory by taking Gramsci's ideas of like the cultural. What were they trying to do? It's like they switched Marxism's focus from strictly economic to including cultural consideration. Right. And when I did that, I discovered that term cultural Marxism. I was like, ah, perfect. That's, that's perfect, right? Yeah. And then almost the very next day, I like I was like, well, what's what's some like basic ideas about cultural? I looked it up in the Wikipedia page. Is like cultural Marxism, anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, <laughs> used by alt-right people to talk about you know the Jewish guys in the Frankfurt School that oh, the Jews are taking over the world with Marxism. Oh, I see. And so I was like. Well, great. Like as soon as I as soon as I found what I thought was the perfect term, yeah, it's already been destroyed by somebody. When I really started to become articulately conservative, and I don't mean that as like a positive thing. I mean, I don't mean that as a bragging thing. I don't, uh-huh. I mean, yeah. I don't mean like I became really articulate. I mean, I started to really formulate it in my brain, those kind of principles. 
uh, is when Trump became president. Mm-hmm. And we're not. This isn't about him. I'm just saying that he, his presidency, amongst other things, has caused a huge fight. Yeah, on the right, particularly yeah. amongst conservatives, about what the heck does conservatism mean and what is its relationship to Trump. And there are people who wanted to call Trump a conservative just because he was going to be a Republican. Uh, there are people right. who there are people who are, let's say, unsympathetic. Let's put it that way, to Trump, who say that uh, Trump is conservatism exposing itself, revealing that it's always been that misogynistic, white supremacist, oh, yeah. billionaire class, old person uh, gang. It's always been. So as soon as I'm finding like Burke and the moral imagination and Roger Scruton and this, uh, and also like deeply not just conservatism but like a Christian Orthodox sort of building up of these things, as soon as I discover it, I find that you know. There's already forces trying to poison the well. Mm-hmm. And some of them are forces even that are supposedly on my side, mm-hmm. you know, and I want to get frustrated at them. So trying to actually articulate what a – because a conservatism does, doesn't mean you're on the right. Right, right? correct. That's not, that's not what it means. I mean, I know most people think that's what it means because Buckley's fusionism pulled it together in the Republican Party along with classical liberals and libertarians, which is another discussion. But that's not what – conservatism mean, doesn't mean you're of the right. It actually has like – you usually fall on the right side sometimes, mm-hmm. but it means that you have there are certain precepts and certain ways you look at the world that are specific. Yeah, there's a different animal, isn't it, than right. just a left-right. Div- well, I mean, unless you think of left-right as conservative as or progressive, conservative, progressive, then it makes some sense. Sure. But usually, when people say the right, they mean Republicans. Right. And you're exactly right, boy. If anything, Trump's presidency has put a fissure right straight through both parties. Yeah. Well, maybe most of the left is against Trump, but even the right is partly against Trump. Yeah. And so there are lines being drawn other than Democratic-Republican right. lines, right? Because the Republicans themselves are not considered necessarily right. conservative. Which I've been thinking, you know, it's one of the maybe, when we look back on it, one of the good things about his presidency and all the fallout from it. Kind of shaking things it's up. It's shaking well. things up, and it's yeah. made people step back and say, well, where do we really stand? Right. I mean, right. The, you mentioned the Democrats. I mean, they're having a fight about it. They may all agree that they don't like Trump, but they wildly disagree on what's the best strategy to deal so with true. them. So true. You know, it's like, do we have, like, a centrist, democratic, status quo-type person? Do we have, like, a straight-up socialist? I mean, yeah. like, what, what do we do? And so they're having their own fissures and fights, which is obnoxious and sometimes scary and troubling for people but i think in another sense it really makes you step back and say well what do i really right think you know you that, can't you that can't could just be very good for us yeah that could be very it's very unnerving i'm sure for most all of us but uh at the same time it may be just the best thing to clarify for us who we really are as a country so there's like needing to articulate ourselves there's just outside of right-wing circles. I think there is just a general illiteracy about what conservatism uh-huh. is. Uh-huh. I was watching some uh, YouTube series that like, was analyzing movies and was analyzing Disney movies and it said that the old fairy tale Disney movies you know, from like Lion King all the way back to like uh, Snow White basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He said that their storyline they were great, they're awesome, they're wonderful, but he was comparing them to newer Disney movies and he said these older fairy tale types were more conservative. Mm. Right? I was like, what do you mean by conservative? He said, well, clearly their message is change is bad. Hmm. Hmm, really? Yeah, like that's what, well, you know, because like in The Lion King, it starts with the status quo of Mufasa and the mm-hmm. lion's in charge. And then Scar upsets that. Yeah, yeah. You know, by bringing a marginalized people group to the center. And then Simba, oh, oh, and then Simba comes back and overthrows them and restores the monarchy. Okay. Right? So it's like, every, it that way. it's like everything, he's like, it's not, it's not consistent because, you know, it's like 
Cinderella doesn't exactly start with the status quo. The status quo is actually bad. Pretty bad. Man. But there's this attitude of there's status quo, then bad guy comes, upsets status quo, and then status quo is to be restored. Uh-huh. I so, see. But anyway, the point being that his attitude was, was a little conservative. What does that mean? Well, change is bad. Oh, and wow. Of course, and, of course, I'm sitting there, and I'm like, um, bad change is bad. <laughs> like, that, that's, that, that means something. That means something. But... The fact that that attitude was there was like annoying. Oh, so yeah. there's like there's like That's all a pretty superficial view of those things. I would is. say I, I always thought Lion King is much more like Hamlet, mm. you know, where the son, the father, is murdered by the yeah. uncle or whatever he is, and uh, and has to restore the kingdom kind of thing. So there's a need to articulate because things are kind of up in the air and it, everything feels up for grabs. There's a general, I think, illiteracy out there. This was like a young person mm-hmm. doing this. Um, and third, sometimes I think. You know, I don't have a wide enough experience with this, but sometimes I feel like conservatives themselves don't do a good job evangelically, if I can put that, and apologetically, if I can do that. Because it's easy for us to say, drop a term like moral imagination. When we know there's a crowd, they're just going to be like, "Mm." (laughs) amen, or something like that. Better to define it. If I was sitting in like my like a you know a classroom at university, so I mentioned moral imagination, a would they even know what I'm talking about? And B would they what they think I'm talking about even close to line up? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this type of stuff, like articulating this stuff carefully and deliberately, is I think extremely necessary, and I, I want so to do too. it. I think so too. So what are your four points, Hodges? Well, yeah, I was I was looking through Burke and. But also looking at some other uh, uh, conservatives in the line of Burke, people like uh, Irving Babbitt and uh, uh, Russell Kirk and T.S. Eliot and uh, people like that. And amongst them, I think there are four elements that are key to understanding their sort of basic view of the world that is that are really the opposites of this idyllic imagination that would help clarify better than any others uh, where the where the two are different, mm-hmm. um, and they are these. Let's see if I can. If we I'll throw them out here, and then maybe we can take them apart one at a time uh, and look look through them. Sure. If you're taking notes, now is the time. <laughs> okay. So here's the first one: that man is basically fallen. Right. That at birth we are sinners. That we are. Uh, evil, if left to our own devices, we would never be good. Um, that, by the way, and when we talk about this, I guess I'll throw this in, but that doesn't imply that men are worthless. I'm just, I think what it implies is an extremely high definition for the word good mm-hmm. that none of us can achieve, you see. So that's the first thing. And for the idyllic imagination, it's the other way around. That is, Rousseau starts his, uh, his uh, social contract with the idea that, that man is basically good, that he's born good and that he's in chains because of the social institutions and so on that, that corrupt him. Mm-hmm. But, but when he's born, he's basically good. So that's a very clear contrast. The second one is that, um, that life is basically tragic. Okay. The moral imagination is that life in this world, in this fallen world, is a, is a tragic event and that we should expect then to see suffering and to expect to see tragedy happen. It's part, of, part and parcel of, who, what the, of the world as it is. Um, the third one is um, <clears throat> that we are 
always to see ourselves in line in community mm-hmm. with those who have gone before us, long before us even, and those who are yet to be born. Mm-hmm. So we're not isolated as a generation. We're not disconnected from our history. Uh, and it's important for us to see ourselves as a link in a much larger chain than our own lives. So generational community. Exactly. Generational community. Right. The fourth thing is that there is no culture without cult. All right. And what they mean by that, of course, is that you can't have a society that, that gels, that holds together, unless there's a common assumption about religion. All right. Cult, we think of cult as a bad word. As right. Christians, we think of a cult as a sort of non-Christian evil thing, and that's how it's properly used in many ways. But what I mean here is cult in terms of, of um, culture, um, cult as a, as a set of beliefs that are common right. to all. It's sort of like something that embodies the ultimate principles. Yeah, that's right. Let's put it that way. That's right. It's nice to associate the word culture with cult. That way, if you understand cult right, then you understand what culture is and why it's culture and why we call it agriculture, because agriculture bears fruit, and so do cultures. They bear fruit in metaphoric ways. Well, family, certainly, but also, you know, paintings and poetry and art, uh, and music a, and uh, agri- um, architecture and things like that. And there's also certain universals or here's a word I'll drop in here. Maybe we'll get around to it later, yeah, yeah. certain givens Good. Uh, to the life of the soil and the life of plants and seeds that you have to learn in order to create. Exactly. So again, agriculture is the embodiment of some kind of set of universals or set of givens that practically produce something. That's a very good way to look at it. It's very important, too, because uh, it implies the natures of things. So there's a nature to growing Things There's, you have to learn that, and when you learn that, you can become what they call wise. Mm-hmm. The person who understands the natures of things is a wise man. So, um, growing things have certain natures, and you have to be aware of them. Even inanimate things have certain natures. Rock works a certain way, and so if you want to carve that rock into your shape, you have to kind of know what a grain it is, and what kind of rock it is, and which you know what will flake and what won't, and you know. Yeah. So the, the the world that God has made has uh, built-in sort of givens, like you say, yeah. uh, that are wise to know. Okay, so there are those four uh, four elements, and the the idyllic imagination, of course, as I said, assumes that we're basically good. It assumes that life is uh, potentially utopian. Mm-hmm. That is, it's not tragic. Uh, life is something that we can make be. A perfect thing, um, and thirdly, you know that we are a community, but only with those that we're alive with today. We're not so much connected to the people of the past, and we don't have much responsibility for the people in the future. We're just re- related to the the people now, and so we can, in a sense, recreate uh, human culture and human nature and so on every generation the way we. We think. You can imagine if you're not connected to anything or think that you have to build on anything that's been built uh, in past generations, well, then you're at, at first kind of free. You, you feel very free. Uh, but it, and it's a kind of utopian freedom that you feel. You know, great, we can, we can not make the mistakes of our past. Well, I'm all for not making the mistakes of the past. But we can start over. We can reinvent the wheel every generation. 
And then lastly, religion actually, in the mind of the idyllic imagination, religion is uh, one of the institutions that needs to be reformed. Uh, so that, that's maybe the wrong word, religion is one of the institutions that needs to be done away with because there are moral uh, implications from any religion, whether it's Islam or Christianity or anything else. There are moral implications, and those moral implications look to the idyllic imagination like a restriction of some kind. You you don't want to restrict my freedom of choice, my autonomy, basically. And so that's where the two, I think, are quite different. You can see two ends of a spectrum, I think, in those four things. Right. So... On the moral imagination side, we've got fallenness, uh, tragedy, community, and religion. Basically. Yeah, I think nice four heads, I guess. Yeah, good. Let's try this one at a time. Under like fallenness, what do you mean by fallenness? Yeah, Hodges, do you mean everybody is irreparably evil? Do you mean that? Um, uh, do, you, do you mean everyone's irreparably evil, or do you mean something else? Do does fallenness mean people are incapable of moral action, like at all? Uh, what is fallenness? And if and if fallenness is true, doesn't that simply undercut all action? Well, if everything we're going to do is fallen and however it is, then why should we bother trying anything yeah, at all? Yeah, great so question. Those are the three specific questions. Uh, yeah, fallenness means uh, the way that the, the third chapter of Genesis describes it, of course, is that, that man disobeyed God. Man, Adam and Eve uh, refused or Adam and Eve uh, chose to, uh, to disobey by eating the, the uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when they were told not to. And that means that every child of theirs is born into that same position of fallenness, that same position of, of sinfulness, uh, broken relationship with God. So the implication of it on a kind of day-to-day uh, level is that we assume that people are going to be um, self-centered, as opposed to God-centered. That's, a, that's the assumption. It doesn't mean that we can't do good things with one another or for one another occasionally. But what it really does mean is that we can't actually be good people. In the, and by that I mean we can't be someone who is uh, acceptable to a holy God on our own. Mm-hmm. Now the wonderful, of course, the good news of the gospel, the wonderful story of the, of the, the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus is that that gets paid for, and we suddenly have a new life, and we can be good now. That is possible now for us to be good. doesn't mean that we're going to give up all of our bad habits immediately, mm-hmm. uh, but it does mean that it's possible now for us to be broken free from that, that bentness that we were born with. Mm-hmm. So um, I think the important, uh, well... Maybe that's the most important thing we could talk about. I mean, but 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 what our discussion here today is about how that plays out in what uh, you know what Plato would call the the Republic. How does it play out in the polis, in the city, in the in the actions we have with other people? And our, for example, our founders. I mean, the founders of the country were wise in assuming this moral imagination aspect that man is sinful, and. As a result, said, we're not going to allow the people, any one person or any group of people, to have all power. Uh, 
we're going to divide the power up amongst three branches of government and have them each check and balance the other. We're, we're going to assume that, that uh, uh, man is desirous of power and that power corrupts necessarily. And so if we allow too much, one person or too many people to have um, uh, too much power, then um, it'll be corrupted and will be be damaged as a, as a society. But it was the assumption that man is capable of that evil, not just capable, but um, inevitable, right. you know, that nobody is, is good enough, in a sense, to have absolute power. Yeah, the definition is like bringing in the Christian definition seems inevitable because the idea of fallenness is a theological term. That's right. Right. That's right. Um, brokenness, I guess, is a more hip way of putting it, and I don't mean that pejoratively. It just, it's it's sure. a more common sure. way of putting it. I want to say something, usually something a little more, um, I guess, negative, because I think that's appropriate. appropriate. Um, cor- corrupt, corrupted, maybe, is a better word. We're, well, that, we're, yeah. bent, we're bent out of shape. You know, if, if you... You know, if you, if you have a nice car and you get it, you lose control in a skid and hit a telephone pole and bend the axle of your car, mm-hmm. there's not much they can do. You've you got to replace the axle altogether. You can't just straighten it out or you can't just repair the bumpers and the fender and so on and then try and drive it because it's not square anymore. The, yeah. the, the axle is no longer. That's what I mean. We're bent out of shape in, to such a degree that we can't drive straight. Well, you're, you're saying that the word like brokenness needs is not was it negative enough. That might not be the right word for it. But yeah, I'm trying to find the right word. Right, find the right words like brokenness is not negative enough. I think cuts across. I think that cuts right through the problem people have with the conception of fallenness. And why I think the idea of brokenness, which I don't think is a bad word to use, just that the argument an argument about it would be that why people want brokenness is because it has less of that sting. Of like saying we're corrupted. I know, I know, and I, I think that's kind of why I'm looking for another word because I think we need the sting a little. Here's my here's my thinking. Brokenness seems it it's it's more um, sympathetic. I'm more sympathetic uh, with with it. I if if um, you know if somebody comes down with cancer, you don't blame him for it, right? Right. But if he goes out and and damages himself. And he's responsible for the damage. It's hard not to. Yeah. If somebody says, "Hey, I've got. I'm sorry. I, I heard you got cancer. Yeah, it's lung cancer. Oh, it's all that cigarette smoking I did." Suddenly, the the, the word changes. You know, there's like there's a personal responsibility in it. I'm not sure it's right, mind you. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that that when you think of somebody getting ill accidentally, as it were, you know, like you last week catching this bug, you don't. <laughs> nobody nobody call, blames you. Nobody calls me up. How dare you? Exactly. It's not right. But there is a kind of how dare you. In, built into this, I'm afraid, uh, of this fallenness that we experience. We are broken, it's true, but the brokenness is, is our own fault. It's nobody's fault but our own. Right. So, yeah, maybe it stings a little bit. That's why I wanted something more pithy, more like corrupted or Gosh, something. I'm already, but, sus- I'm already suspecting there's like whole depths to this stuff we could go into. Just one. I was hoping like all four points for a podcast. Now I'm worried we might do one point a podcast. <laughs> Because so, yeah, tell me what you're thinking about. Broken. Well, I mean, like the okay, so fallenness includes the idea of more of like. Okay, here's what I'm thinking. Fallenness says that there's some kind of f- fundamental 
disjointment yeah. at the heart of the human person. Right. 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 And that that disjointment is insurmountable. Right. Okay? We, we can't overcome it. When I say disjointment, it's particularly between two things. I remember you mentioned this once, and it's what made me think of the word. It's a disjointment between who we are, who we actually, who we act, what we actually do, what we actually act like, and who we ought to be. Right. Right. There's an are and there's an ought. Right. Right. Maybe disjointedness. Right. We're out of shape. Lewis used bent a lot. Yeah, that's a good word. In his like, uh, in his uh, fictional work, and. So this disjointment, and there's this disjointment, and it's insurmountable, and it naturally leads into the second point about tragedy. Mm-hmm. You know, like we always fall short. That's right. In some way. That's what the uh, the biblical word hamartia. You know, the idea of falling short of the right. glory of God. We miss the mark. You know, right. there's a target. We're supposed to shoot it. We miss. Yeah. All right. And we're kind of built to miss. Right. In some way. All right. There's all kinds of stuff we. Could, I wanted to go forward with that, but I'm already anticipating a tangent because I had a discussion about this online because I was looking across Facebook for people who were wrong. Yeah, and, good. Um, you didn't find any, I'm sure. No. no, everybody was pretty good that day. But <laughs> the next day, I was like, I was, I, oh, man, I was asking some uh, question about uh, the nature of, uh, like, the, the idea of original sin and why some people, because I had read something somewhere where people were like, apparently don't like the concept and they argue about the concept. And I just basically asked what was the deal with that, and it just turned into a massive comment discussion about multiple people talking about it. And one thing I got out of it, not from any particular person, this is just like reflecting on it later, is the moral culpability argument of the fall, that we're not just broken, but we're somehow morally culpable for the brokenness, strikes people the wrong way because the very idea of the fall is that a fallenness? Mm-hmm. Is that you're born this way? Uh huh. Aha! I see what you're saying. So if you're already born, how can you be responsible for it? How can you be responsible right. for something you're born with? Which is why some people yeah. probably turn to the word brokenness because uh-huh. it's like, okay, well, the reason you choose wrong or you choose not God, yeah, all right, which is the in the Christian theological terms, that's the essence of the, what evil is and what sin is. Is you choose not God, right? Right. Uh, the worst being that you choose yourself rather than God. Right. Um, if if you are born already bent and broken, and that bentness and brokenness means you're going to do immoral actions, then where does moral responsibility come from? Great. Now I'm remembering why I, this thing was brought into my mind because there are people who flooded my com- uh, flooded my combox. What am I talking about? Sorry, millennial speak is always over is always dialed to eleven. <laughs> there are people who came to the combox who had a much more like they claimed. I, I believe them. I just I don't know how to verify it. Eastern Orthodox uh-huh. view of the fall, mm-hmm. which in Eastern Orthodoxy, as f- from what they told me, um, fallenness is inheriting death, but not moral culpability for what Adam did. Mm-hmm. Now, they say that death includes, like, physical death and moral death, or physical and spiritual death, and that death and decay eventually leads to you committing sin, and then you're culpable for your own sins. Mm-hmm. But you're not guilty of what Adam did. Mm-hmm. So see. you're not born with guilt. You're born with death, and death eventually cashes out as guilt for your own sins. I see. And so I thought that was interesting. But it was raised, but it made me think of this idea of 
Fallenness includes not just a brokenness, but some kind of guilt status that you're born with. And so the question is, how you can you be guilty from birth? Right, right. Right. I think, I think that's a very good question. Uh, and, I, and a lot of people wrestle with it, I, myself included. Um, but it seems to me that we... Here, look at, let's jump to the third one for a second. Remember, the third of our points was community. Mm-hmm. And we are connected to the community of the past mm-hmm. in ways uh, and connected to the, to the future uh, in ways. Um, and <clears throat> that means, well, look at it in the negative. If we, can, if we live in a time that assumes the idyllic imagination that basically cuts us off as a, as a life from that which went before and that which goes on beyond us, then it's easy to ask yourself, how can I be held morally accountable for anything that happened during my lifetime? Because I was born innocent. See what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, so all of this it, it, idyllic imagination kind of folds together. I'm born innocent. The life is something where we can make good choices and and uh, and bring about utopia. And the con- community that we have is only the community that we build with one another in this life. Well, it's hard to imagine then why I'd be responsible for anything that happened to, from my fathers. And yet the Bible talks about the sins of the fathers being visited on the sons. So that's not an unusual idea in the the biblical. You inherit the consequences of the generations that have gone before you. That's that's right. I think that's part of it. But you also inherit because, I mean, it's just like past. Your very existence occurs because you are the child of uh, your parents. Mm -hmm. In fact, you know, the joke is uh, that uh, having children is is hereditary. That if, that if your parents didn't have any, the chances are neither will you. So, so you you simply can't have a child without a mother and a father. You just have to have that. That's the way we're built, right? So, so whatever it is that we um, call our life has its roots in something outside of our life, mm-hmm. right? So, <clears throat> that with that in mind, then think about what the Bible actually teaches about the about the the thing that it calls the original sin. The original sin is this idea that I can call my own shots, that I can be my own highest authority. I don't have to have God. I can be God. You shall be as gods is the temptation. You knowing right and wrong for yourself, you see. You don't have to actually refer to anything in a sense by faith. And and on just on a little side note here, uh, you've got a child now. I have a child who's now grown. But when my child was young, I had to teach him something as you're doing now about what is right and wrong. You do this and you don't do that. There are certain things you do and there are certain things you don't do. Well, when I was teaching my son about uh, right and wrong, um, I would tell him, for example, uh, I don't want you, you're too young to cross the street by yourself. He had had friends across the street he wanted to go play with, and he's only three years old or whatever, Mm -hmm. and the cars were zooming by. He didn't know anything about cars. So I said, no, this is the limit. So you've got to play in the front yard, but you can't go into the street without me. I've got to be there to hold your hand and walk you across the street. And he didn't understand that. It didn't make any sense. His friends are over there, you know. And what I wanted for him was I wanted for him to learn what was right and wrong Mm -hmm. by faith in me. You see, mm-hmm. trust. I don't know why God, Dad wants me not to do this, 
but I'm going to do it his way, you see, even though I don't see it myself. But the temptation in the garden was basically, I don't see why I can't do this. I'm just going to do it. In other words, I'm the one that gets to decide what's right and wrong. So there are two ways you can learn things. You can learn it by faith in your dad, or you can learn it by walking across the street and getting injured. You know, Well, that's I was trying to save him from that second one. But that second one is the thing that we assumed in the garden, that we said, I'm going to just live my life in accordance with what I know to be true. I can, I can do this. I've got a smart mind. I can handle this. So <clears throat> the nature of sin is not so much that you stole or that you that you you know committed murder or even that you uh, you know envied your neighbor's swimming pool or riches or whatever you know coveted your neighbor's whatever like the the, the command would say the actual sin is this idea that i can decide for myself what's right and wrong say well that's what we inherited that disposition. That disposition. And that, assu- yeah, it's true. Maybe when I'm born, I haven't committed murder. I haven't, you know, envied anybody. I haven't been, I haven't lied to anybody. I haven't done any of the sins that we see in the law. But the sin is still there. The sin is this assumption. It's not even a questioned assumption. It's just a axiom. It's just taken for granted that I get to decide what's right and wrong. And you have to overcome that in a child. You have to tell the child, no, you're going to do it my way because I'm smarter than you are right now. Right. I know things you don't know. I'm going to, you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to do some damage to yourself or to others by disobeying me. So on the cosmos scale, on the scale of the of the universe, uh, you know, God was saying, "I know better than you. Let me tell you what's right and wrong." And and we said, "I don't see why I should have to do that." And that's the sin. That's it. And from that comes everything else that we call sinning, sins. Right. Um, yeah, I think that's a. That's about as close to like the biblical understanding of like fallenness as it gets. It's that inner disposition of. You know what Frank Sinatra say? I did it my way. I did it my way. Kind exactly. Of thing, right. Right. As far as the question of guilt goes, I feel like that's a theological discussion for another day. So we'll like shelve that one. Fair enough. Um, but even if you're not Christian, you're not thinking in theological terms. There's still this notion of there's still this tradition of there's something we ought to be, we aren't it. We ought to try and be it, but we don't always get there. Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned to our students, sometimes uh, you know when we're in Nicom- when we're reading the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, right. he had a very weird, or to me it seemed weird, but it was an odd aside where he basically said that human beings are strange creatures. We're like the only creatures in existence that can deliberately thwart their own end. Because hmm. like in Aristotle's world, Aristotle's philosophy is heavily teleological, mm-hmm. all right, which means everything has some sort of uh, end goal it's moving towards. Right. Right. Everything is born, is created, or everything has. I'm trying to avoid all the like the Christianese I can throw in there. Everything has within it potentials to be the perfection of what it's supposed to be, mm-hmm. and it it actualizes those things. Now, it can usually actualize them because something acts upon it. But regardless, it's trying to actualize and realize it. So a rock, you know, rolls downhill because that's you know. It, it, it's that's the potentials within it activating, so it can go as low as it can because it wants to be right. at the lowest. It wants right. to it wants to reach equilibrium and a kind of perfection, which is like Earth goes down, mm-hmm. right? Just mm-hmm. as fire goes up and all this type of stuff. 
Well, he said every creature has some sort of end, some kind of perfection, and all its actions are driven towards it. That's, that's why it moves, is because it's trying to realize that end. Mm-hmm. And his whole book of the ethics is trying to figure out, like, well, what is the, human, the end of a human being, and then how can they achieve it? And in the middle of him talking about what the end of a human being is, he just throws in there this little aside about how, you know, it's interesting... Almost every other creature in the world just seems to move towards their end by pure instinct and into it. They just move. They just go. It's almost like the way they're just built. Uh-huh. But human beings have this weird capacity to deliberately thwart their own end. Yeah, yeah. To, like, choose to go against it, which is why they need teachers and instructions. why he said the end of a human being was the rationally virtuous life, which mm-hmm. is, like, another discussion. But it had to do with being virtuous, mm-hmm. truly virtuous. That's the rational part of it. But you can't do that unless you're trained, unless you're taught, which he said is like, it's weird. We're like the only ones who have to have that. You know, we can like deliberately go against our own end. Or if we don't have someone to instruct us, we'll just go off into the, you know, wild somewhere and just never achieve it. Even Aristotle is tangling with this weird disjointment between who we are and who we ought to be. You know, who we are with all our potentials that could be realized and who we ought to be, which is our perfected, rationally virtuous self. There's this disjointment between the two. Mm-hmm. And trying to get to it, I don't know if he would have said it's insurmountable, but he almost hinted at the idea that there seems to be, it's like going upstream, right? You know, there's like forces pushing against you. <coughs> there are forces pushing against you that have to be overcome. So even in like a classically philosophical sense, if you don't want to be theological about it, even classically philosophical sense, there's always been this understanding of like the deep uh, flaw, like, like something gone wrong. Actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. There's been this understanding of how, like, human beings are disjointed between who they are and who they ought to be. Right, right. Even in, like, an artistic sense, you look at, like, Sophocles and the, and the uh, Oedipus trilogy and stuff like that. Yes. Or even the very idea of Greek tragedy, that the hero has some kind of flaw. You know, right. the, the, again, the homartia built in, some That's way right. that they miss something. That's right. And that flaw is what causes things to collapse and fall. Sure. There's this idea that somehow, some way, whether you're Christian, you believe in Adam, or you're not and believe in something else you hold to, there's something in the heart of human beings that's fundamentally out of joint and it can't be reset. That's right. And I think you see it in, in the great tragedies, not only Sophocles, but in Shakespeare. So you see it in Othello, for example, or you see it in Macbeth, or you see it in King Lear. All of them are, are characters that have these flaws that they can't seem to get round. And, the, and uh, a lot of times they're very good men. Othello is a great guy, you know, uh, but he has this flaw, this jealousy. Uh, king Lear may have been a great king for a long time, but he had this this flaw that led him to the, have the whole kingdom come apart. Well, um, we're we're with that notion. I think what we're doing is describing the moral imagination's assumption about the nature of man. And uh, the the idyllic imagination wants to say, I don't. I reject. I reject that idea that the that the uh, the there is evil in the world, no doubt. But the evil in the world is the result of external things, not internal things. It's it's the result of systems and institutions and governments and societal. <coughs> Societal um, pressures, you know, that was kind it, of stuff. Was it Rousseau that said, man is born free, but is everywhere in chains? Yeah, that's right. Right, it's that idea, which actually led me to, the, is leading me, uh, perfect segue, it checks in the mail, um, from like, okay, so one question about fallenness would be culpability and guilt, which 
we'll set that aside because that's a whole other issue. Another one is that one of the sort of consequences of believing in this fallenness idea is that the problem with the world is in the heart of the human person. That's right. Right? It's, it's, it starts there. That's where the real problem is. That's right. That's and right. no amount of external or it, – it's a spiritual malady. And thus, it's not fully accessible by just merely material machinations. No, you can't. There's no. <coughs> there's no program you can put together. There's no legislation you can write. There's no right. disciplines or practices you can put together to fix it. Right. right. You just can't. That's right. All right. So the culp, which means the moral responsibility is supposed to speak is on you as an individual. Mm-hmm. Some people would buck against that because they say, look, sometimes people are bad because they don't have a choice because the systems and the structures around them either fail or they're corrupt. Sure. You know, like a person who's like, I don't know, uh, pick your cliche, okay? Like the person who's like in poverty and stuck in poverty and because of corruption or imperfect economic systems or whatever, they lose their job and they can't get a new job because they had a criminal record for something that really should have been Overlooked, but because of like corrupt legal systems or unjust legal systems, or you want to they got tagged for it really bad. So now it's hard for them to get another job. They have a family to feed. What are they going to do except turn to a life of crime? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. How can you that possibly say yeah. that that person is morally culpable and so on and so forth? So this question of like the individual versus systems, right? Right, the internal versus the external. Where is really the blame? Right. Right. And I sometimes wonder, even within the conservative idea of like moral imagination and this element of fallenness, is it when it comes to external and internal factors, is it really conservative to act like you that 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 you actually pick one or the other? Uh huh. Uh huh. It's a kind of false dichotomy. Yeah, yeah I think it's fair dichotomy? to say that. I mean, even if you uh, uh, even if you adopt the moral imagination's definitions, uh, you, you still see that. Uh, sinful men can build systems that are corrupt, yeah. right? And so it's easy to point to a corrupt, corruptly built system uh, or whatever uh, you, to a system and say, "Look, that thing is bad. It's 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 causing a lot of trouble, and it is causing a lot of trouble." Mm-hmm. But the um, but the difference between the two is not that one says it's only internal and the other one says it's only external. The difference is that one says it's internal and thus also external. That's the moral imagination. The other one says, no, it's only external. Right. And so while they can point all sorts of fingers at all the systems that are wrong, they're reluctant to point the fingers at themselves or other men because of, <coughs> because of uh, uh, internal problems. You know, Solzhenitsyn said that, uh, that the line between good and evil doesn't fall between uh, nations or between races or between economic classes, the line between good and evil falls between the two halves of the human heart. Yeah. Every human heart. Yeah, the true, like, traditionally conservative response would be that the problem is internal. It's in the heart of every human person. And human beings create things and build things. That's right. And they put themselves themselves into the things they build. That's right. And that means the systems and things they build are probably also affected by that same disjointment in the same way. How, how can it not be? How can it not be? Sure. So it's not, so it's a, it is false. It's a false dichotomy, and it's one that gets foisted to say that it's one that people will try to push conservatives in because conservatives can be so 
and this is probably an inheritance from fusionism where we learned maybe some bad practices from our libertarian and classical liberal allies, mm-hmm. that somehow if you're in a bad scrape in some such way, shape, or form, then it's all your fault. Oh, yeah. Right? You're just lazy or you're just unimaginative. Right. Right. You need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, AOC's lack of ability to understand symbolism notwithstanding. <laughs> Um, it, it's like lots of fun, right? right I know. But anyways, it's like. But I mean, there is a way in which that can come off as just kind of cold and calloused and just not not understanding. Like you know, there's some people right, are in a situation right, where right. there's you all don't these. Understand the circumstances. You don't understand you the don't circumstances, see what's really right? Going on here, yes, right. Yeah, I get that. Right, I get and, that. I, and I think and there's there's two, because I think we picked some people probably uh, who call themselves conservative picked up some bad habits. Mm-hmm. They fall into the trap of the false dichotomy and feel like, well, if the people I disagree with are on the external side, then I have to be 100% whole hog on the internal internal side. That's right. In, instead of saying that, well, it's internal, but the internal always comes out. That's and right. Like, and, it, and it makes things. That's right. So it doesn't dismiss corrupt systems or something like that as a problem. It just recognizes that if you try, if your only solution is to just fix the systems you're never going to fix anything well that's that's how it is i think and that you can see this idea playing itself out throughout the end of the 18th century and into the 19th century into the 20th century mm-hmm. uh, so it's it's held a, a great sway uh, i think over our intellectuals and our culture uh, you can see it in the French Revolution. They said uh, the problem we've got is with the aristocracy, mm-hmm. and the the middle class needs to overthrow the aristocracy. And once overthrown, by the way, that aristocracy included the church. Right. Uh, anybody that had a th- was holding traditional authority, the church or the state, needed to be go- to be gotten rid of. In fact, there's that famous line that uh, I think it was Diderot is said to have said. I haven't seen it con- confirmed, but. Uh, tradition is that Diderot said, uh, man won't have peace until the last king is strangled with the entrails of the last priest. Yeah. <laughs> what a what a picture, right? Yeah, that real metal. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Uh, but that was the attitude because the problem is the aristocracy. The problem is the class of people, and they've been abusing us, and that's the, all there is to it. Right. The problem is the millionaires and the billionaires. That's what we're hearing now. It's the same idea. The problem is whiteness. That's right. If we just get rid of that thing, then we'll have utopia. We'll have peace on earth. If we can, ju- I heard. I heard this fellow he claimed to be a Christian, and I don't take him. I assume he is. I don't I doubt doubt that he is. I'll take his word for it. But he was saying that the real problem with the world is patriarchy. Mm. That if we can just get rid of patriarchy, all I could think is, don't you call God Father? But never mind. Let's save that for another day. That's another discussion. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, that's that's it. I mean, there's this this idea that there's a class or a a group of people or an institution or a uh, an economic strata that is uh, that is against us, and they are they need to be overthrown. And in a sense, that becomes a uh, on an almost religious uh, battle. Mm-hmm. You know, we are in the right. There's a kind of self righteousness that comes from that, and it has influenced, uh, like I said, 18th, 19th, and 20th century uh, world, and 21st century now too. Right. Uh, so you see the French Revolution. You certainly see it in Marx and Engels by the mid 1800s. Uh, in 1848, of course, they wrote the Communist Manifesto, all about that. And uh, and then later on, you see and you see the arguments against uh, the idea of socialism. Uh, in you know Dostoevsky and uh, Tolstoy and other Russians, 
but then into the 20th century, there's lots of debate about it. I mean, uh, our, some of our presidents have been more in line with that and others have not, you know, and so on. So this debate has been going on a long time. Um, <clears throat> the, the assumption that, that the, uh, the world can be fixed if we can just fix the external things is going to inevitably fail if the moral imagination is correct. If it's not, well, then it's just a long march, as they say, to get everything straight. Right. And it's understandable that everybody would continue to push and push and push and get this progressive mindset, because that's what you get. If you, if you believe that the world is, um, is, that man is basically good and the world is the problem and external systems need to be adjusted, then it's just a matter of dealing with the institutions you can deal with and your children are going to deal with the institutions they can deal with and sooner or later down the road we'll have utopia in this world. But the moral imagination says no, the world is tragic that way. It's not going to be uh, perfectible. And that seems like a terrible thing. Well, why is it not a terrible thing? I mean, is it a terrible thing? Well, it seems like a terrible thing, doesn't it? Because yeah. it sounds like there's no hope. It's completely fatalistic. There's no, nothing you can do is going to change anything. Well, that's, I mean, that segue is, again, I feel like I'm going to say segue too much. You know, no, I think I've only said it twice. Anyway, that segues into the second point about tragedy, because fallenness and tragedy are, like, obviously connected together. You know, the tragedy element in moral imagination could probably be summed up with that suffering is woven into life. Yes. It's just woven yes. into life. Yes. I mean, I had, I put down a couple, when I thought about it, I thought about it, I had at least four quotes, right, from four very different people. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was Jesus telling his disciples that uh, the poor you will always have with you. Right. right. Right, which is, you know, I could have also put in this world you will have tribulation. Yeah. As well. That's right. But I thought that That's one right. was the poor you will always have with you. Uh, James Madison, when he was talking about you know why government has to be built the same way it is and why men aren't angels, he said that the latent causes of faction are woven into the nature of man. Mm-hmm. Right, the, reason, right. the reason we can't get along, the reason we can't have a core, and the reason we divide into little factions, which I guess today we would call that tribes, like tribalism, uh, is because of our fallible reason and our self-love mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. So that's just woven into our nature. Oswald Chambers, uh, who most people just know from up most from his highest and don't know, he wrote a whole bunch of books on theology, which is a crime because he had great thoughts. Yeah, tremendous mind. One of such from the, his book on Job was he said that outside of God, the honest man of thought can only conclude that the foundations of life are tragic rather than rational. That's right. right? That's, That's right. right. What do you suppose he meant by that? Well, it's interesting because he has that little... I don't know if caveat's the right word, but that qualification at the beginning, he says, outside of God. Right. That's what I was going to get at, too. Right. He says, the honest man of thought can only conclude that the foundations of life are tragic rather than rational. Yes. Right? Which, to follow that up, I have a Jordan Peterson quote he says all the time. He says, life is fundamentally bounded by suffering and tainted by malevolence. Yeah. Yeah. That's his thing. I think he recognizes that reality. He does. But there's the thing. It's that outside of Mm God-ness that is interesting to me. Because when I look at the moral imagination, I look at the four points, all right, fallenness, tragedy, community, and religion, I almost feel like there's actually, there's a conservative version of moral imagination, but then there's a distinctly Christian view of these things. Hmm. What I mean is, is that I can look at, say, fallenness, and I can see the sort of Christian view, but I can also see sort of a 
intellectual man of letters sort of stepping back and saying, well, the, the, the book of Genesis gives us one take on this idea of like the brokenness with it. And they would talk about how we're broken or, you know, we're, we're, we're there, we had the hamartia in us. Right. Though they might not leave that to moral culpability. I mean, are we, are we supposed to blame Oedipus? No. See, see, that's it. It's right, like, it's right. like no, the, the, pur- the purpose of the tragedy was like to create not judgment, but fear and pity. Right. right? Those two that's things, right. Right? That's right? That's more of like a strictly traditional, I would say strictly, no other modifiers to it, strictly conservative attitude is the fundamental flaw is not necessarily morally culpable. It's just a brokenness that's at the heart uh-huh. of things. Uh huh. Yeah. The point of Oedipus is that it's that it's built into the nature of the world that the very best of us is going to be able to is going to fall. Therefore, life is a tragedy because suffering that's and failure are woven throughout it. Yeah. Right. That's, They're woven that's throughout. Right. That's right. And Jordan Peterson is another one of those man of those. Uh, sorry. One of the, another one of those. High-minded men of letters. I know. Yes. I know some people yes. think he's the Antichrist, but those people need to stop reading Vox and Slate and actually listening to the man. Yeah. Anyways, he's another one of those high-minded men of letters that that's his attitude. That you know Genesis and stuff teaches us that you know uh, there's a fundamental brokenness to us and stuff like that, and that therefore life life is bounded by suffering, tainted by malevolence, and that's it. Yeah, but that's it. Right? There's no, there's nothing else. You have the potential to bring order out of chaos, eh? You know, like you know stuff like that, or like you can, you can be the logos that pulls you know creation out of the void or something like that. Mm-hmm. You can meet that all that potential and realize something. But you're never going to overcome. There's no end to suffering. There's no end to failure. There's no end to falling apart. And as a Christian, yes, there's a deep tragedy, but there's deeper comedy. Right. 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 Well, that's the beauty of it, isn't it? When Jesus says, for example, uh, in this life you will have tribulation, the next line is, but... Take, uh, you know, take heart. That's right. Fear not, because I've overcome, overcome the world. The world. Right. In this world, there's going to be tri- tribulation. Yes, indeed. You've got to understand that. But then he gives an explanation for a deeper magic, like you're saying, like Lewis talked about in the, the Narnia books. It, I think what I, your distinction is a good one, I think, because there is a kind of conservative mind that allows for people who are not Christians, but who recognize the kind of warp and woof of life. You know, I think uh, Roger Scruton yeah. was kind of like that. You yeah. know, I, I don't know that he was a believer, but he certainly understood that there was a reality there that was tragic yeah. and need, and a call, called for uh, what is a conservative position. And, and I think uh, in many ways uh, uh, Peterson does the same thing, and he's being uh, lambasted for it. What the Christian revelation does is give an explanation for not only how it came to be, but that God himself has provided an answer for it, yeah. and I've overcome the world is a great, uh, great joy. Yeah, I almost feel like if I, if I may dare, Hodges, Please, if I may dare, dare away, that this is a sort of Christian commentary and even critique of conservatism itself. Because mm. I don't know if conservatism would actually call the first one fallenness. They may like it as a poetic metaphor. Fair enough. But they might call it uh, the flaw Broken or something like that, or broken. They might use that. Right. Whereas Christianity comes in with the idea of fallenness, which brings in a different, a different kind of moral order. Mm-hmm. You know, you're beholden to something other than just the broken universe. There's also the holy God. But more specifically, I think for the Christian, the second point wouldn't be tragedy. But the second point would better be described as romance. 
Hmm. Because the essence, because I'm thinking of it in literary terms, because, you know, okay. literature person. For a Christian, the tragedy is high literature. Okay, it'll never stop being high literature. But because of Jesus, comedy has completely displaced it uh-huh. as the highest form of literature. Sure. One very grand, specifically Christian brand of comedic literature, you can see the quotation marks I'm using with my hand, mm-hmm. um, is the romance, uh-huh. right? These chivalric, Arthurian, sometimes they have Arthur, but you know, those kind of, the romance literature mm-hmm. that came out of like Germany and France and then England through like the, Medieval. yeah, the 12 through 14, 15, right. even the 1500s. Um, a romance is weird. I teach this to my kids. A romance, like tr- like epics, are usually built on somewhat the tragic model. They're not tragedies, so you know they have different. They're a different genre, but they're built within a world that understands like the tragic vision. Mm-hmm. You know, the Iliad certainly is tragic. All right, I mean, even the Odyssey kind of because like even though Odysseus gets home, there's still more for him to do, and mm-hmm. there's still a sense of like you know. Who knows what will happen next if the gods upset things. The Aeneid has kind of a tragic vision because of all the violence that has to happen for Aeneas to bring it about mm-hmm. and all this. Romances, however, they're in the epic sort of vein because of these long narrative poems about a hero doing something exciting. But the hero is flawed, but their journey is about the flaw being redeemed. Right. And that redemption piece right. is the piece that the Greeks couldn't possibly understand. They can't get that. It's no wonder that the the, the classical world, the Sophocleses and the and the uh, Ed, uh, the uh, uh, Homers and the and the uh, uh, Virgils of the old world, you know, the classical world, the pre-Christian world, uh, could only aspire to that level of of comedy. There isn't any such thing as comedy that way. Yeah. Comedy for the Greeks is a is a very low thing. Yeah, in it, many ways, it was mostly satirical. That's right. That's right. That's a different kind of thing. What you're talking about is more like the divine comedy yeah. of, of uh, Dante. Yeah. And, and uh, others, others, like these medieval romances, where there's, a, there's a, um, a flaw that needs redemption, and there's this kind of a sense of, of uh, sanctification process that's going on. You find it in, uh, in the Fairy Queen, for example. Yeah. I think that's why I say, like, if, you're, if a Christian was looking at these four points and was critiquing them, a strict conservatism might have, like, the flaw or something mm-hmm. like that, whereas a Christian would say fallenness, mm-hmm. which is something different. But specifically on the second point, a strict conservative would say tragedy. But a Christian, I feel like, has to say romance. They have to say it. Well, because, because of this possibility of redemption. Right, because yeah. for me, I would say if tragedy says suffering is woven into life, romance would say suffering and failure and, and, uh, and sin mm-hmm. is real, but so is redemption. Right. Yeah, right. I think that's a the fair redemption that's a fair is critique. real. That's that's very good. I think when I think of tragic and the way Burke would use it, or maybe uh, uh, Eliot, or or maybe Babbitt even would use it, w- would be to say, um, I, literally, to to fight against the notion that 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 uh, the world is perfectible, yeah, that but, you're not going to be able to bring about utopia, yeah. that your best efforts are going to be fall short of perfection, that kind of tragedy. Yeah, and I think that's the part that overlaps. That's why Christianity can overlap with conservatism on that point. It's the anti-utopian vibe. That's right. That's right. right. But the beauty of the Christian picture is that the, the comedy, the redemption actually isn't going to be fulfilled until the new heavens and the new earth, right? So in the end, the, the, it's true, things work out rightly. They work out good, 
uh, all's well in the end. But it's all's well because of what God has done and not because of what man has done. And it's really about, I think this, this question about mor- moral imagination versus idyllic imagination is really on the level of, of the question of whether man's own power can accomplish the, the gap, can fill the gap between what he is and what he ought to be that yeah. you were talking about. But that's a great that's a great point because our our literature our very literature changes with uh, with the, the the as Christianity seeps into the mind of the culture over the course of I don't know ten centuries or so uh, it becomes uh, it, it, it generates literature like what you're talking right. about. That's why I said that. Well, you know, when I said that in Christianity, comedy displaces tragedy as the high art, as the highest literary art. I was mm-hmm. thinking, thinking specifically of the Divine Comedy. Sure, that's perfect. Which outshines almost every tragedy and epic that ever came before it. Quite right. And yet it's a comedy. Right. Right. So. Yeah, that's good. Sure. Should we save the next two? For well, we could save the next two because they're community and religion, which if we're going to do um, not just talk about them, but even like, I don't know, Christianly critique them or something yeah, like that, yeah, yeah. then maybe we want to give ourselves time. So we'll stop there. Okay, good. Fallenness and tra- or brokenness and tragedy and then fallenness and romance. Let's put it that way. Um, next time we'll pick up with community and religion. Yeah, sounds good to me. Uh, meanwhile, in regards to... Recommendation. Do some recommendations. Absolutely. Okay. What do you What do you got? Well, um, I would like to suggest that people have a look at a book that Russell Kirk wrote about T. S. Eliot, and much of what we're talking about gets brought up because Eliot himself uh, was basically tutored by uh, Edmund Burke's writings. T. S. Eliot, of course, being the 20th century uh, poet, mm-hmm. um, uh, author of uh, Proof Rock and. And uh, the wasteland, and and especially the four quartets, which is my favorite poem. Uh, anyway, Russell Kirk wrote uh, a book called *Eliot and His Age*, and it's basically a, uh, a biography of Eliot, but it also sort of takes on the ideas that Eliot addresses uh, in his work and uh, his his conversion and uh, how his faith changed the way he wrote and thought. Mm. So and, I the, that. and the moral imagination is in there. Talks about the moral imagination. Yes. Yeah, Kirk was a big, big proponent of that idea. I guess I say I say proponent. He was definitely convinced by it. Yes. And argued for it constantly. Yes. Um, and he he actually inspired uh, William Buckley to a great great degree. Uh, so what we consider to be modern conservatism, that kind of conservatism, National Review, and so on. Mm. Uh, came really from an inspiration, I think, from Russell Kirk. Uh, and Kirk, I think, thought Buckley sometimes wasn't conservative enough, which yeah. is amazing. Yeah, I've heard they've had disagreements. Yeah, yeah, which is wonderful because uh, most people think, well, you know, Buckley was conservatism personified. Yeah. Uh, and in many ways, he was. <coughs> do so, you have one you want to? I do. I mean, it's. Um, I wish I had something at Kirk's to recommend, but alas, I am very. Uh, Ignorant of a lot of his writings, so but T.S. Eliot, on the other hand, what I'm going to recommend if you want to get into T.S. Eliot more, so get Kirk's book Eliot and His Age. There's a book by the uh, Canadian uh, literary critic and writer Northrop Fry. Oh yeah, uh, Northrop is N O R T H R O P, and then Fry is F R Y E. Uh, Northrop Fry is famous for his like uh, mythological criticism or the anatomy of criticism. He loves to find archetypes and mythological mm. tropes and stuff. 
He wrote a very small book that's hard to find, but if you scour Amazon, you should be able to find like a used copy of it. It's just simply called T.S. Eliot. Okay. It's a very small book. It's very short, all right? But it's basically him, like he spends one chapter giving a quick biography and then four chapters just focusing on, focusing on very overarching themes and ideas in his work. Okay. And it's fantastic. One of the things I got out of it that I never forgot that was extremely helpful was what he called T.S. Eliot's purgatorial vision, mm-hmm. which is something he got out of uh, his studies of Dante mm-hmm. and how you have to go through that dark night of the soul to bring redemption about type thing. But if you're looking to like scour into the moral imagination in a specific way, T.S. Eliot's good. And if you want some help with T.S. Eliot, and who, Russell Kirk, and who doesn't? And who doesn't <laughs> right. Uh, T.S. Eliot's, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Russell Kirk's Eliot and His Age, and Northrop Fry's small little book just called T.S. Eliot. Excellent. Uh, both excellent books. Very good. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, some of us are going to go blow our nose and take <laughs> some more antihistamines. We hope you get better soon there. Uh, so do I. Uh, this has been From the Center, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. <laughs>